Tristan, glad to have you on the Bitcoin Source. Can we start things off by you introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, hello everyone. My name is Tristan Scott. I am uh, the author of a new book I wrote called Bitcoin and Beef. So that's what we're here to talk about, I'm assuming. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm an engineer by trade, but really passionate about decentralization in our food and financial systems. Uh, Tristan, so, you know, when we start off the Bitcoin source, I usually always go through um, a series of questions. But the first question is usually, where did you source your Bitcoin knowledge? I know you said you were an engineer, so I'm really interested to hear um, your thoughts on this. So, um, you know, where did you whether it be books, courses, or even people in the space, like what kind of inspired you to be a better Bitcoiner? Yeah, so my journey into Bitcoin started in college. So yeah, engineer at a tech school, I kind of, you know, heard about Bitcoin and crypto early 2017, was definitely really curious about it, you know, tried to do my own research, kind of really got into a lot of, a lot of the altcoins and, and learned the hard way. And eventually in 2018, I think I got on Twitter and was just trying to absorb as, as much information, but definitely uh, on on the community Twitter, I uh, was reading a lot, a few books as well as listening to a ton of podcasts. So I would say podcasts kind of uh, definitely was was a big one for me in the beginning. And you know, as time went on, I definitely shifted away from you know altcoins and and other cryptos and, and just focused solely on Bitcoin as I kind of understood you know how uh, the magnitude of, of importance of being, you know, the, the only true decentralized currency and, and hardest form of money out there. Uh, and that tied into a lot of my other interests is kind of the, you know, the macro environment has, has changed a lot. But yeah, you know, the Bitcoin standard definitely cemented that viewpoint for me. But yeah, a lot of podcasts I listened to early on were, were still really helpful for me to understand, you know, the, the greater the greater sphere in this in this space yeah most definitely i was i thought you were going to say like you know mastering bitcoin or one of these other books that are kind of like super tech heavy or more tech heavy but um you know nonetheless like i found that overall a lot of people utilize the bitcoin standard that's also one of my favorite bitcoin books to kind of orange pill people and to just have a refresher too like you know i got into the space in 2017 but Every once in a while, I always go back and refer to the Bitcoin standard because the book is just such a, a, a prefola of, of information that's so good for people to understand about the protocol. Yeah, and I think it's really important. And, and I think that books, you know, really highlights the value from from a, a macroeconomic perspective, of course, that being Seyfedean's background is, is in economics, as opposed to more of like how the actual blockchain functions on, on the technical level. And I think in terms of a sequence of understanding, that's probably more important to know first before you dive deeper into, you know, the technicalities of, of how the networks run and how the miners and nodes are, are, are operating. But I'm definitely obviously now super interested in that as well. But, you know, there's other, you know, just high level economic books that help cement that mindset for me as well, like The Creature of Jekyll Island, for example. So um, that's how I think about it, at least. Yeah. Uh, Tristan, so, you know, I kind of want to dig into your book and kind of talk about, you know, the vacillation between health, currency, food, all those things. So how has, you know, beef helped reclaim your physical health? I got into the health space through a self-healing journey through having one too many concussions. Uh, so I was in a really bad uh, spot when uh, I really had a self-healing journey 
And I, you know, hyper-focused on my diet lifestyle and, and kind of that led me to, you know, animal, animal-based diet and being really interested in, in regenerative agriculture. So, you know, just from a nutrient density perspective, uh, beef is, is probably, you know, the most nutrient dense food out there. And you want to talk, you know, about beef liver specifically, it, they're extremely nutrient dense foods and they're very bioavailable. And that's why they're definitely different from, from plant foods. I was always pretty healthy eating, you know, high protein. I was an athlete in college as well, but I actually really didn't eat a ton of red meat. And uh, that definitely changed a lot when I started researching and reading more about, you know, the benefits and the nutrient composition of, of all of these foods that are in my diet. So, yeah, I think it was more so, you know, shifting the mindset of just being really aware of all the nutrients and foods I'm consuming, eliminating all processed foods and incorporating, you know, an animal uh, based diet that's that's heavy in the nutrients that's needed for me to succeed and, and for me to heal from, from my brain injury. So beef was definitely a foundation of that. Uh, and I also enjoyed learning and, and really passionate now about how it can be beneficial for you know, the environment and regenerating our soil, as well as providing a nutrient dense food source at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, when I read your book, like I was just always curious about you know, a lot of the maximalists in the space, they really subscribe to like the carnivore diet. And I realized that like Bitcoin is all about low time preference. So do you have like any long term concerns about having like a heavy based meat diet? Yeah. So that that is funny because I actually removed a section of the book that talks a little bit about longevity. And it, it's because it gets a little technical in in the in the health nutrition side of things. But for the most part, you know, and I'm not a strict carnivore either. I definitely eat, you know, some plant foods, mostly fruit and fermented vegetables, uh, tubers as well. Um, but, you know, the center of my diet is animal foods. And the center of that is, is beef. You know, I just bought like a whole cow and have a freezer full of, of beef. And I think it's fantastic. But, you know, having a high protein diet um, or eating this quantity of, of meat long term. So, from you know the positive side of things, it's really beneficial from the nutrients, but just having high protein in general is really important, especially if you're super active, if you're uh, playing sports or, or strength training, which I'm doing both. So you know I'm strength training three to five times a week, and then I'm hiking or skiing, you know, two two times a week on top of that. So I'm really active. So repairing you know the the muscle damage from from the sports and activities I'm doing is imperative. And then as you age, so you're talking about doing it longer term. So you now we know sarcopenia and muscle degradation is something that's really prevalent in the older population. And there's some crazy statistics out there saying basically if you're over the age of like 75 and you suffer a fall or a hip fracture, there's like a one in four chance you're going to die within the next like six to 12 months. So consuming a high protein diet. Um, to maintain muscle mass as you age or just starve off the or stave off the, the degradation of muscle is really important. But at the same time, it's a balance because protein uh, and muscle protein synthesis, you know, fuels growth in the body. It's an anabolic pathway um, known as a mammalian target of, of rapamycin called mTOR pathways in the body. And you don't want to be over activating that. So, you know, that's why you know, you could say bodybuilding, for example, is unhealthy. Those guys are eating like, you know, high protein meals six to eight times throughout the day. 
and they're just trying to grow. They're trying to grow as much as possible, which is kind of counterintuitive to, to longevity um, because you need to have a balance between uh, ana, anabolic pathways and then kind of uh, autoph autophagy and self-cleaning pathways in the body. That's why fasting can be really helpful. So unless you're a bodybuilder though, I think you don't need to be eating six to eight times like large high protein meals throughout the day. I personally, you know, just three really satiating meals throughout the day, maybe uh, a protein shake after a workout, but really three to four times max. I think that's a good balance. Also sometimes do intermittent fasting. Um, and another thing that's to consider as well, that's been brought up in the health and nutrition space is this balance of amino acid profiles. So one amino acid uh, called methionine has been correlated to lower lifespan or um, higher incidence of, you know, death uh, longer term. So that's like a con concern for, for these really health nerds that are out there saying maybe high protein carnivore diets could be problematic long-term. Um, but if you eat, um, you know, the entire animal organs and more collagenous tissue, you know, bones, bone broth, roasts, they are higher in an amino acid called glycine, which most people are deficient in. And it seems like a balance of methionine to glycine could be really important for longevity. But again, it's, it's all a balance, right? You know, I'm trying to put on, you know, maybe five, 10 pounds more muscle right now but I'm still doing it like a natural way. I'm not just like doing like a dirty bulk or just eating as much calories as I possibly can. It's more so like a low time preference, slowly putting on muscle throughout, you know, a multi-year period, not a cut and bulk cycle, which is a bit strange how we do that nowadays. And if you just think about ancestrally, which a lot of carnivores like to point ancestrally, um, right, as the meat-based diet is, is what we, our ancestors kind of grew up on and how we got here, you know, they weren't eating five to six meals a day. They were, you know, if anything, probably fasting the majority of the day, going out for a hunt and reaping the benefits of their kill for, you know, one to two days or less, and then going back out after it. So they were eating high protein, but none of them were walking around like, you know, six foot, 240 pounds of muscle. It just wasn't even like efficient to carry all that weight. And, and when you have that uh, amount of muscle mass, your metabolism is so much higher. So just the caloric intake needed to maintain it is even higher. So it's like, it just doesn't happen. Uh, it didn't happen probably ever uh, ancestrally. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought that up because you know, I'm a martial artist and I kind of really changed my diet over the last few years. I was dabbling with veganism and now I would consider myself a pescatarian. And the reason for that is that I need the collagen from the meat. I need the collagen for my joints, for my body as, you know, I get older, even though I'm a young guy now. But my question that I wanted to ask from you just talking about this is, do like, you feel that diets are different depending on the demographic of the person. So like, for instance, me being African-American, uh, you know, my food might tend to be, I need to have more alkaline foods, right? And less acidic foods. So like for the people out there that are curious about going like on a keto a diet or an Atkins diet, for example, do you think that there is a change between like, you know, Europeans, Asians, African-Americans, or is it all the same? No, I think, uh, I'm not a big subscriber to like diets, diet wars. I talk about that in the book a lot. I'm, I'm really 
tired of the dogma and the energy waste in this space because I think I tweeted it this morning too. Diet is solely dependent on individuality and geography of where you are. So um, there is a spectrum, right? You know, we want to eat foods closest to nature, you know, one ingredient, whole food sources. And um, yeah, if, if you're African-American, maybe you're more tolerant to, to eating higher amounts of carbs. Personally, I think if you're closer to the equator in general, you're probably going to have more fruits in general or, or more produce growing naturally, uh, more plant species. Um, but for me, I'm like in Wyoming and Utah, and it's like in the winter here, I'm not eating like fruits. There's no fruits that are growing in the winter, maybe some frozen berries. Um, and berries in general are a fruit that grows in this region. I, I don't eat bananas because there's no bananas growing in the United States, maybe in Florida or Southern California, but I'm pretty sure they're all coming from the tropics. So there's a geographical code um, which we don't even understand really. I mean, it all has to do with, with, uh, things out of our comprehension, but, and, and, you know, energy from, from light and just the, the area it was grown in, I try and just eat hyper local. So, you know, fermented vegetables are a way we preserve produce throughout the year. So I think that makes sense. Um, and fermented grains as well, but, you know, I think. If not, something's not growing in the region you're located in, then you probably shouldn't be consuming it. And that's could be irrespective to protein sources, carbs, plants, uh, you name it, grains. Um, but yeah, and then in, in that regard, there definitely maybe are some, some races, some ethnicities that are more tolerant to carbo high carbohydrates, certain types of fat profiles, and that could be variant on your genetic background as well. So, you know, in the U.S., it's really hard because you got such a mixed bag of, of ethnicities that a lot of people are coming from. But I think it's definitely something to consider. And, and that's why every diet is, is different in terms of what might be most optimal. But I think we can all agree that, you know, bioavailable animal source foods are, are important to have. And then depending on the spectrum of where you are and your background would be, you know, what sort of plant and grain species you could be including in your diet. So that's my opinion. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. I think that that's super important for people to hear. You talked about region and locality, right? And, you know, inflation always brings higher food prices. So why do you believe that decentralized systems like Bitcoin matter for currency and food? Yeah. Um, well, for yeah, I mean, for currency, I think that's the easy question, right? We we know that having uh, a deflationary increase of the supply of Bitcoin is is only going to be more beneficial over time, and especially as we continue to increase the the supply of of U.S. dollars and and other global currencies. But yeah, from the food perspective, it's it's interesting because right now I think the you know, the beef and then just the food industry in general is, is more top heavy than maybe any other industry out there. You know, the top four beef packing companies control 80% of the industry. And the problem is it's a really inefficient supply chain because these are global multinational corporations that we're not even using the resources uh, we have available available to us locally. So most of the beef in the United States is actually being shipped out to uh, Korea, China, Taiwan, 
and other countries in Asia. And then 75 to 80% of beef that's labeled grass-fed in the U.S. grocery stores is being imported from the likes of New Zealand, Australia, Uruguay. So it creates this complex supply chain. And that's why we've seen, you know, food shortages because if, you know, cargo cargo bays and cargo uh, high shipping areas have delays for any other reasons, you know, your, your food is not going to be able to get to the grocery store. So, and that incurs a lot of, you know, there's a lot of steps, you know, it's, it's exchanging many hands from the rancher to the broker, to the distributor and the packer, to the, you know, processing before that, um, and then shipping it across, you know, the oceans. It's really complex, so you can incur many inflationary events in, in such a complex supply chain. But if we go local and you buy, you know, a quarter or a half or a full animal from your local rancher, you, you understand the price dynamics in this environment and there's less events taking place. It's probably just, you know, your rancher, a local processor to you, that's it. So it's more secure. You can go verify the quality of the, the food that you're buying, whether that be produce or protein, uh, an animal source. And then you can shake their hand and you have a guaranteed source for the next how many months for your family. And uh, yeah, I think it's extremely important. And, you know, I talk about processing and packing. It's a market access issue. That's why we've gotten so centralized at the top in the beef industry and the, the food industry, uh, because ranchers sell overseas because that's just an easy customer and they don't know how to go direct to consumer. They don't know how to sell to their local community anymore. That, that connection has been broken. But if we reinvigorate that connection, we can enhance our food security at the individual level and reduce the complexity of the supply chain. And it's a win-win for you as a customer and your rancher because they'll actually keep way more dollar amount per animal they sell if it stays within the local community instead of uh, selling wholesale to a broker, which will likely mean it'll go overseas. You know, there's a lot of uh, Bitcoiners in the space that are subscribing to Citadels. And when you talk about having that connection, being personal with your butcher or a farmer, it makes perfect sense because you're more apt to buy that food from your farmer or from your butcher if you know the quality of how they care for the animal, how they clean and process the animal when they do um, kill it. So it's like, I really agree with you on that. And I think a lot of people that have, you know, discrepancies with this diet or even with the way that Bitcoin maximalisms, you know, maximalists kind of push that onto the the Twitters and the cyberspaces of the world. I'm so grateful that you broke that down to give people a clear cut um, understanding of like the benefits of that diet is personal and that it's kind of based on how it makes you feel when you eat these type of foods. So thank you, Tristan, for kind of breaking that down. That was that was perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what's most important is that we just move closer to nature and closer to our supplier of foods, you know, whether that be plant or animal, we need to get closer to how our food's being raised. That's imperative.
Exactly. Um, Bitcoin and beef has been transformative for so many people. Why should the average person appreciate Bitcoin scarcity as well as the scarcity of real food? Yeah, I mean, I wrote this book um, definitely to educate the masses who are maybe on the fence or, you know, they know about these topics or, you know, they have some inkling of information and curiosity. Um, it's, you know, a technical dive in some areas, but it really starts high level and backs up a lot of the, you know, the research for both of these areas. And, uh, you know, everybody should be concerned about monetary scarcity and hard money right now. I think the past two years have transformed the public's uh, inclusivity on, on these topics, right? Like everybody's waiting for, you know, the fed to announce the interest rate hike tomorrow. Like it's like the everyday person is so engaged in, in these topics because it's so important to them and being involved in the decisions of monetary policy is, is really, uh, important because that's, you know, that's their livelihood, wealth and health. Uh, simultaneously are probably the two most important things in your life to be happy to live a fulfilling life and do the things that you want to do. So everybody should be incentivized directly to have a hard form of money and to put their hard work, uh, the, you know, what they're reaping from their hard work at their job or, or their business or what, what have you. Uh, into a form of money that will appreciate or hold its value at least over time. And with the, you know, the macroeconomic environment, inflation is probably going to be somewhat high for, you know, years to come. I don't, these years of, you know, two to 3% inflation are, are probably over. And um, unless some miracle happens, which we already know the system's broken, so that's probably not going to happen. But yeah, that's why Bitcoin is so important. But the, the average everyday person still thinks that Bitcoin is just a speculative asset that they can make money on. They don't really understand the fundamentals of why it's superior as a form of money. And that's why I wrote the first chapter, What is Bitcoin, to outline that. And I really hope that that resonates and they understand why monetary scarcity is so important. And then in terms of food, just going back to food security, and food dense, food nutrient density is is critical because again, it's it's health. Uh, it's going to empower you to do what you want to accomplish in life. And having the guarantee that food's going to be on the table is you know providing life for you and your family, as opposed to being reliant on a grocery store for the essentials. When who knows what could happen, and you know, an even further worsening of the global geopolitical. Uh, system right now and, and kind of have grocery stores that are just completely empty, you could have a chest freezer full of full of food uh, if you connect with your, your local producers. So it's a no brainer for me to get educated on these topics and more connected, but there's always a hurdle. And that's why I wrote this book so that people could overcome uh, the first hurdle of how do I get involved? Why should I be, you know, learning about these topics? How do I communicate on these topics with friends and family and, and producers? And yeah, it's about taking control of your life. That's why I wrote this book because both these topics are about putting yourself back in the driver's seat 
individual sovereignty and allowing you to take responsibility for your health and your wealth and providing that for, for your loved ones. I couldn't agree more, Tristan. And, you know, thank you for taking time to be on the Bitcoin source. Before we leave, can you give people your social media, um, any of the future projects you have going on and also, you know, push your book out there as well? Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, on Twitter, I am at Bitcoin underscore beef. That's where I'm focusing most of my energy nowadays, posting a lot of content from the book and other educational tweets on both Bitcoin and beef. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. Um, it's also available on the Oshi app. If you want to buy it uh, with Bitcoin or Lightning, you can do that on the Oshi app. You'll actually get a discount. So I'm excited to have that for the Bitcoin community. It's a cool new app as well um, that's uh, working on, you know, expanding the use of Bitcoin through the Lightning Network. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Bitcoin and Beef. And yeah, future projects I'm working on getting you know, into the regenerative agriculture space. I'm trying to work with a, a bison ranch right now as well to, to get direct to consumer bison ranch that's raised fully in the United States. So if you follow my Twitter and you're interested in, in bison meat, you can uh, definitely stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, just continue the education and, and who knows, maybe there'll be a, a second revision that's a, a deeper dive in the future called Bitcoin and Bison. We'll see. <laughs> Tristan, this Bitcoin conversation was great. Super insightful. Have a good one. Thanks so much for having me. You as well. Bye. Uh -huh.